Hey, Obsassnacks, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files, and today I'm going to be talking to you about 212, the Hail Mary. But before we get to that, a few announcements. I want to remind all of our listeners out there that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and CastBox. Also, if you haven't had a chance yet, make sure that you head over to the Sassnack Files blog for all of the latest and greatest details on new projects, articles. I am currently doing an Outlander book club. As I'm recording this, we are getting ready to release book club number four, which would be the second half of part three on the road. Lots of good stuff in there, and I am excited to talk to you guys about it. So, If you haven't read the books, or you're looking to reread before book nine comes out, or you're just desperate for some Outlander in this ginormous Droughtlander we are going through, feel free to head on over to www.thesassanacfiles.com and check out the book club. If you haven't followed us on social media yet, make sure to like and follow on both Facebook and Instagram for all kinds of fun little games and entertaining tidbits. As season six gets closer, I'm posting all kinds of articles and things that are coming across my computer for you guys to check out. Sam just released Clan Lands, Sam and Graham, I should say. And while I haven't read it yet, I have heard really good things. So I'm excited to dive into that little droughtlander oasis, I guess you could call it. If you aren't following us on Facebook, We have been doing a bracket contest for the best episodes of Outlander. We have officially made it through season two, and I am happy to announce that Dragonfly and Amber has been named the best episode of season two, which I happen to personally agree with. I know that not everybody did. It was up against Faith, and it was a fierce battle, but Dragonfly and Amber pulled it out, so... We'll talk about that episode next week, and it is my favorite of the series, so I will try not to go too long on that one. Alrighty, I think that about wraps up announcements, so without further ado, let's get into 212, The Hail Mary. I thought that this episode started out really well. I mean, there's a lot of heavy material to talk about, but it shows... Jamie and Clara, Myrta and Fergus all riding up. They look like hell. Okay. They're dirty. Their hair's plastered their forehead. They look exhausted. And it's really hard to put a time and a place to all of this. But the show did a really creative thing in that they had Fergus ask, where are we? Claire says, just outside of Inverness, and then they pan around so that you're looking at them as they keep going, and you see Culloden House is what they're riding up to, and that's kind of like the duh-duh-duh. This is no bueno, folks. We are at Culloden, okay? So that sets the tone for this entire episode, because... There's nothing happy about this episode. Lots of misery. And that's just going to continue right on forward into next week. So I guess we should just get to it, huh? I guess one of the first things to understand about this episode is that Jamie and Claire are rapidly approaching 
the point of surrender on this. They've now been working towards preventing Culloden and the inevitability of it for some time, probably a year or two at this point. And we really see that come through. Claire is sitting at the table inside Culloden House and she's like, all that work, all that plotting, how the bloody hell did we end up here? (laughs) I feel you, girl. I really do. I mean, it's so, so crazy. And that's how the uh, Diana Gabaldon universe works. If you guys haven't read the official companions, which are these thick little supplementary reading materials for the Outlander universe, she kind of has a bunch of different essays and summaries of the books and all kinds of different material, but she actually goes into how time travel works and all of that. Basically, it just her philosophy on it is that huge events like wars and peace treaties and things like that can't be influenced by one person. And so that's the answer to Claire's question. It doesn't matter how much they plotted, how much they schemed, how much they wanted to wish this all away. There were far more people involved in this than they could have ever hoped to influence to their side of things. So, yeah, that's pretty miserable. And Jamie hasn't given up yet. That's pretty much his goal this entire episode from start to finish. He's trying and trying and trying to convince Charlie and to convince Murray and O'Sullivan that this is not a good idea. And we see this most vividly in the scene with the War Council, where Jamie is essentially saying, why do we need to fight this at all? Because (laughs) O'Sullivan, the jackass, is just like, I found the perfect solution for our problem, Claude and more. And Jamie walks in, he's like, I, Claude and more is the perfect spot for the British. And he basically says what historians have been saying for two or three hundred years, that Culloden Moor was pretty much the worst possible spot that they could have picked to have this battle. It's plain ground, no shelter. The British artillery pretty much blew the Scottish line to pieces. It was over in like 15 minutes. I mean, this is a massive battle with thousands of soldiers and it was over in 15 minutes. Jamie knows all of this. Jamie is going into this war council with his eyes plastered open, okay? Claire has pinned his eyelids open. And, oh, man, I can't imagine being in his position, like, knowing that no matter how hard he tries, he can't be completely honest with these guys. He can't just be like, yeah, my wife knows the future and we're going to lose. Newsflash, we are going to lose. (laughs) There's no doing that for Jamie. And me being a completely honest person, like, I would much rather tell the truth, no matter how harsh of a reality it is, and just get it out there than to be two-faced and deceitful. It it just doesn't work for me. So, and I know that Jamie and Claire are both that way as well. And Diana Gabaldon has said that, that um, Jamie and Claire are both very honest people by nature. And that is why their marriage works as well as it does. 
And you can see how honest they are and how much it kills them to have to keep lying to people about whatever it is. Because they can't really be honest about anything in this entire situation. Myrta's the only one they can be honest with. So it's a really tough situation and Jamie just keeps fighting and keeps fighting. It's not in him to give up. It's not really in Claire to give up either, but it's getting harder and harder to be optimistic about this. I mean, at this point, we are three days away from the Battle of Culloden. And how many more options are there going to be in the span of three days? Not a lot, Bob. (laughs) So yeah, it's not looking good. And as Claire is in the village, she runs into an old friend, Mary Hawkins. And Mary is purchasing her second bottle of laudanum in a week. So that's a red flag. She's very cold to Claire. It's so odd given where we just left Mary in the last episode. She had just killed a man and witnessed the murder of the Duke of Sandringham and they had run off. And so it's been several months since that point. According to Claire, they sent Mary back home to her family. Well, apparently that is not where she went. And according to Mary, she has been living with Alex Randall. He has a position as an overseer of a large English estate outside of Inverness. And that against all odds, mainly against Claire's meddling, Alex and Mary have ended up together. And that's why Mary is pissed at Claire, because Alex told Mary everything about why he left Paris, why he left Mary, that Claire was instrumental in that decision, that essentially Claire told him he wasn't any good for Mary, he couldn't give her the life that she wanted, and that he was better off to just go. Which Claire, I think on some level, did do for Mary, but 90% of the motivation behind that was Frank. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. 90% of her motivation was for Frank. And that's why when Mary says, I thought you were my friend, and Claire says, I am your friend. Like, he couldn't offer you anything. He's not good for you. He's very sick. He doesn't have any money. Basically sticking to the old story. I just find myself really angry at Claire in this scene. Like, really angry just almost disgusted because this poor sweet girl is having her life toyed with over a potential descendant of hers. It's like, oh my God. So this kind of meddling, theoretically, could be affected by Claire because it's not hundreds of people making these decisions. It's one person influencing potentially one or two people. So... How much of Claire's poking and prodding and two-facedness have resulted in what's going to unfold in this episode? We'll never know. It certainly appears that Mary and Alex were going to do whatever the hell they wanted, regardless of what Claire thought, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) But really, the primary thing that we get out of this episode is Frank. It's been the question all season, right? How did Frank come into existence? It's been the belief all season that Frank was the however many times great grandson of Blackjack Randall. 
that has been Claire's driving force in all of these terrible decisions that she has made. It's all been for Frank. And now she finds out Blackjack Randall isn't Frank's however many times great-grandfather. It's his brother, Alex. Alex and Mary had an illegitimate child that Blackjack married Mary to protect that child and Mary for his brother. I don't know about you guys, but when I first read this in the books, I about shit a brick. I was like, are you kidding me? I was so flabbergasted by this turn of events. Not to say that I wasn't intrigued, like 100%. So we're going to dive into that a little bit more in this episode, and I'm really excited to talk about it. The primary motivation, I think, because it's always about Frank, right? Anything that has to do with the Randalls, I feel like, at this juncture, is solely motivated by Claire's need to make sure that Frank exists. And I love how Myrta was like, all of this for the mythical prick Frank Randall. (laughs) And Claire's like, Frank is neither mythical nor a prick, okay? And Myrta says, oh, so by all means, let's give a lamb to be a plaything to a twisted and black-hearted wolf. Truer words could not have been said in that moment. That's how I feel. What Myrta said is exactly how I feel. It's just so complicated. (laughs) I get why the marriage took place, and it 100% makes sense. Alex is clearly not going to live much longer. Mary's in a predicament. She's pregnant. Obviously a few months pregnant. Jack knows that Alex is the father, and Alex wants to make sure that Mary and the baby are taken care of. The problem is, is that I think Alex gives Jack more credit than he's due, I think. It's so interesting in this episode because we're seeing a different side to Jack Randall. It's very uncomfortable (laughs) to see because we've known Jack as the twisted, black-hearted wolf that Myrta called him, you know? This is the guy that raped and tortured our beloved Jamie Fraser. This is the man that did all of these terrible things. I mean, he he lashed Jamie a hundred times just for the hell of it. It's so screwed up. And yet, in this episode, we see a kind Jack Randall. He's taking care of his brother and his brother's fiance because his brother is unable to work because he's too sick. So he's providing for them. It's like Mary said, they'd be destitute without John. He clearly cares about his brother. I mean, he's sitting there cradling his brother, telling him it's going to be okay. You really get the feeling that Alex is the one person on this entire earth that Jonathan Wolverton Randall actually cares about. And when Alex asks Jack to marry Mary, he doesn't like it, but he does it. I mean, he throws a hell of a fit about it, (laughs) but he does it for his brother. And it's just 
It's such an interesting conundrum. Jack Randall, I mean, for all the hate I have for his character, he's really a fascinating, fascinating character. I really feel that Jack's reaction more than anything is that he doesn't appreciate being backed into a corner by Alex. It's like he had no choice in it. Alex is just saying, you're going to do this. And Jack is one of those people that has to have control over every single situation. And if he doesn't, he lashes out. It's that mercurial nature in him that he needs to be in control. And if he doesn't, he just snaps. We see that multiple times in this episode. One of the most fascinating scenes for me personally watching this was the scene in the pub with Jack and Claire. And he is basically pleading with her to change Alex's mind. He's like, I can't marry this young woman. He literally uses every device in his arsenal to prevent this marriage from going ahead. If you're not really taking time to look at the motivations of these characters, it's very easy to overlook and just see the evil, twisted bastard Jack Randall. But what I saw when I was watching this was a man that is so desperate to get out of the situation that he is in that he will literally do anything and say anything. And the thought occurred to me that. He almost seems afraid of his own nature. I think deep down, Jack scares himself a little bit. There's a part of him that realizes, and it may be a very small part, I'm not saying that Jack Randall is a good person. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that we all have that voice inside our heads that tells us right from wrong. And A lot of the time, like 99.9% of the time, I think that Blackjack can turn that voice off or at least turn the volume down on it, like way down. Because I think he gets a lot of gratification from these evil acts that he commits. That's why he's saying, like, he's flabbergasted that Claire would be willing to let her friend marry him because he's like, did Jamie never tell you what I did to him in that room? He just can't believe it. So I think that when Jack is alone by himself, thinking, like actually just alone with his thoughts, there is a part of him that is scared of his own behavior and realizes what a monstrous person he is. I think that part of him is most evident when he is around his brother. Alex is the only person that Jack cares about in this entire world and he would do anything for his brother to protect him to help him he's never hurt Alex he's never even been tempted to and so I think that when he is around his brother that monstrous wall kind of falls down a little bit and it's like Alex said when Jack is trying to talk him out of it he says you think I'm unaware of the density of the dark wall you have built to hide the better parts of yourself from the world. He knows. Like, I doubt he knows to the nth degree all of the terrible things that his brother has done. But he knows that Jack struggles 
for the light. And I don't even think you can call it that. I think that's what Alex wants to believe, that there is good in his brother. Because he sees it. He's benefited from it. That's what he tells Jack. Like, I have been the beneficiary of your kind soul. Obviously, it's there somewhere. You know, that's what's so conflicting about this episode. Like, there is good in Jack Randall. It's just, he never lets it show. So I really, really did enjoy this part of this episode. It's kind of turning everything on its head in a lot of ways. Like, we can't forget all the bad things. But it is interesting to see a different side to the story. Further to the point, I think it's important to understand why it is a good thing for Mary to marry Jack. And Claire kind of explains it to both to Myrta and to Jack a little bit, and to Jamie even, that she's not encouraging Mary to be Jack's wife. She's encouraging her to be his widow. Because, if you will remember back all the way to Season 1, Episode 15, Wentworth Prison, Before Jack parts ways with Claire and pushes her down the body chute, she gives him a curse. I give you knowledge, Jack Randall, the date of your death. And we do not hear what she tells him. But here it is coming full circle that the date of Jack Randall's death is April the 16th, 1746. And for those of you that are not history buffs, April the 16th, 1746, is the Battle of Culloden. So, Claire, at this point, is not worried about Mary. I mean, I'm sure she is to a certain extent, but she fully believes that Jack is going to die in a matter of a day or two. What she is concerned about now is that Mary is taken care of. And it's If Mary marries Alex, yes, that solves the problem of giving the baby the name of Randall. And Jack thinks that that is the issue at hand, but it's not. What the problem is, is that Mary needs to be taken care of. Alex is clearly not going to live very long. And this is Claire's thinking and justification for her actions, is that if Mary is Jack's widow. She is entitled to his property and his officer's pension. Plus, Jack Randall has a good enough pedigree that her father would let her come home once she's widowed. Mary and the child would really and truly be taken care of if Jack marries Mary. It's a conundrum. It really is. But in the end, everything works out just as history foretold. Isn't that just special? (laughs) Uh, I tell you what, guys, that final line of this episode where, oh, the prince is going to get his battle tomorrow on Kawad and more. I literally went, boo. (laughs) Like, the bloody prince, Charlie. God damn it. How many times have I watched this show and I have the same reaction every time? I'm just like, god dang, like, ugh. It hurts my soul just a little bit. So, 
that pretty much takes care of the Jack, Alex, Mary storyline. There's one more thing about that that I want to chat about, but we will chat about it in a few minutes. Because I want to rewind a little bit and talk about the arrival of Column. Column knows that he, like Alex, is on his last leg. He's come to Culloden House to put things right before he passes away so that the clan is taken care of. There are a couple of scenes within the span of this storyline that I think are important. The first one, it's just a blip of a scene where Column and Claire are together alone. And Column says, I want to commend you on an admirable marriage. And Claire says, you know, I can remember a time when you were, what did she say, less approving or something like that. And he said, well, that's the good thing about dying. It allows you to admit (laughs) all your mistakes. And I just thought it was sweet that he takes the time to just say, you know what, I was wrong about you and Jamie. You're really good for each other and you have a good marriage. And he takes time to congratulate her on that. This is the same scene that we find out that Galus Duncan and Dougal's baby lives. Which may not seem that important right now, but I promise you it will come back in the story. Not going to tell you when, but it will come back. And Dougal knows about the existence of this son of his. And that child is being raised by William and Sarah McKenzie, who we don't ever meet, and I don't think we will. But he's being raised by two members of the McKenzie clan who couldn't have children. So those are two very interesting tidbits about this story. But the headliner of this particular storyline is that Colum wishes for Jamie to be Hamish's guardian. Dougal about has a coronary. (laughs) As you can imagine, I mean, Dougal's a very prideful individual anyway, and he's like, you're giving a Fraser the guardianship over your son when rightfully it should be me. And in fact, like, I should be your successor, not just your son's guardian, but your successor. Hamish hardly even knows, Jamie, that he's not a good fit And Colum looks at his brother and says, Brother, if you were half as popular as you believe yourself to be, there would be more men here now in this army of yours. And I think Dougal just, that really shuts him up. Because he's right. If he had been as popular as he thought himself, he could have literally just said, All right, guys, we're going. He's the freaking war chief of the clan McKenzie, okay? If he wanted something and he had a following, there's really nothing that could have stopped him. So, valid point, Colm. But Colm has, it's not just a matter of one final twist of the knife, as Dougal thinks it is. Colm recognizes something in Jamie that Dougal doesn't really care to see. And that's the fact that Yes, Jamie and Dougal are both leaders of men, but there's a key difference in how they lead their men. Jamie puts the lives of his men ahead of any other priority. Dougal can't say the same. Dougal would rather run his clan into the ground for 
the glory of putting a Stuart on the throne than to save his men and his clan. So that's why, like, Colum knows that Jamie would raise the Mackenzie banner as the chief of Clan Mackenzie if it meant winning the war. But Colum knows also that if all is lost, Jamie is not going to waste his men's lives needlessly. And so that matters to Colum and his decision, as it would to any good leader, that you can't waste men's lives and hopes and dreams on something so futile as a war that's not going to be won, especially when you can see the end coming and you know it's not good. <laughs> I think that is why Colum trusts Jamie so much. And he even tells Dougal, he's like, if you can say the same of yourself, then by all means, say it, but you have to mean it. And if you say it and you mean it, then you can have the guardianship. But Dougal can't, in all honesty, say that his men's lives matter to him more than the war matters to him. So that was a really, really great scene. And that leads into this parallel storyline that we have. I think I might have briefly mentioned it at the beginning of the episode. But that was really the big thing that stood out to me in this episode was how the writers constructed it. This episode is really the tale of two sets of brothers and their rapid conclusion to those relationships. These are both sets of brothers that one of them is sickly and one of them is perfectly healthy, seemingly. There was this great quote that really sums up this episode for me personally. And it says, my poor brother, I've spent my life crippled in body and he has spent his crippled in mind. Colum said that about Dougal, but it really reflects this story as a whole because Alex and Jack are the same way. Alex has spent his whole life as a sickly young man and Jack He's not sickly. In fact, he has a very strong constitution, as Alex once put it. But he's crippled in mind. He's not a whole person. He can't empathize with people. He can't understand the urge to be good. In fact, the only person that can bring that out in him is Alex. So he is just as crippled in mind, but in a different way. He is a sadist. and a narcissist. Dougal and Colum are the embodiment of crippled in body and crippled in mind. Only Dougal's crippled in mind is his selfishness and his arrogance and his unable to understand why his needs aren't more important than other people's. It's very interesting. And I, I found that quote so insightful into what I was watching because my mind was understanding that I was seeing two storylines that were very, very similar, but it was unclear to me the clear line between the two, the connecting factor. And yes, there are there are very big similarities between the two. I mean, yes, it's two brothers. One of them is sick. One of them is healthy. And they both die at the end. <laughs> but there there are more vivid parts of the storyline that kind of draw that connection. And the final scenes between the two sets of brothers 
really just blow me away. They're phenomenal. You get the final scene between Jack and Alex, which is Alex struggling for breath, Mary standing there crying, and when he stops breathing, Jack lets out this strangled sob. This is Jack Randall, okay? He doesn't show emotion. I honestly don't think he knows how to process it. Like, that's the disconnect in his brain, I think. And he just jumps on his brother and starts pummeling him. And I'm really glad that they didn't physically show it because I think that would have been too much, like just too graphic. It's enough by Mary and Claire's reaction and seeing Tobias going away at it that you understand what's happening and you understand the horror of it. That scene for me, was really an eye-opener for me because you're seeing Jack try to process something in the only way he knows how, by violence and anger. He's beating the hell out of his brother because he doesn't know what else to do. He doesn't know how to convey all of these emotions that are bubbling inside of him. He can't cry. He can't show weakness. He's incapable of that. What he is capable of is hammering the piss out of his dead brother's body. And so that's the only way he can think of to to get out what he's feeling. Coincidentally, that's a hell of an impression to make on your new wife. But it's very interesting to see. And then you flip to the other set of brothers. There's this gorgeous scene where Dougal is talking about how Colum is basically the source of all of his misery. He's just airing his grievances and essentially blaming Colum for this dark and twisted outlook that Dougal has on life. He's saying that it's Colum's fault that he's not this optimistic go-getter that he used to be when he was a boy because of the things that happened to Colum. He's telling the story of when Colum had the accident that broke his legs and disfigured him for the rest of his life. And he said that as a young boy, he believed that Colin was going to get better. He believed that because he was his big brother and nothing could beat his big brother. He was invincible. And when that dream shattered and Dougal realized that he wasn't going to get better, he cried. And he said he hasn't cried like that since. Because it was like the realization that a dream is is just that. It's a dream. It's like waking you up into this terrible reality, this terrible world you're living in. So he blames his brother for that, for this realization that most people go through anyway, that the world is not all sunshine and roses. It's a very dark place and bad things happen in it. But he blames Colin for abruptly shifting him into that world, I guess. And that's where this anger and tension between the two come from. But it's so fascinating that he's talking about the last time that he cried was when he realized that. And then when he realizes that Colum died and all of these things that he had wanted to tell his brother were now stuck in his head, just trapped there. And that he would never get to tell Colin the things that he needed to get off his chest. He cried again. 
and that was really powerful for me. The performances that these actors put forward in this episode really just wowed me. So those two scenes were just like neon billboards in this episode. They really stuck out. The final thing that I want to talk about, and I think it lightens the mood just a little bit, is the final scene between Jamie and Claire. He's talking about how he can't believe that Claire encouraged Mary to marry Blackjack. That wee slip of a girl is how he describes her. But um, Claire's like, no, I encouraged her to become his widow. And Claire drops the bomb that Blackjack's going to die tomorrow at Culloden. And Jamie's like, but I'm still fighting to prevent Culloden. What happens if I'm successful? Then Jack's going to be alive. And Claire said, if he doesn't die by some other means, then I am prepared to keep my promise to you. And something happens. It's so subtle, like the widening of Sam's eyes. You can literally see the light bulb come on. And he says, to bleed him. And Claire's like, yeah. She just gives him that look like, hell yes, I will. (laughs) This guy's caused too much trouble already. And when he says, he almost says bleat, bleat him. God, this cold look in Jamie's eyes, like just murderous intent. It's so amazing, and I can only remember one other time seeing that look on Sam's face in this series, and it is from season five, but it is just, it's scary almost, like, to think about it, for me anyway. I mean, yeah, that's intense. It's Red Jamie, is what we call it in the book series. Full-on Red Jamie. But it really brings us full circle on where this season has started and where it's ending. All these promises that have been made, all of these statements of intent that were made in the first half of this season are coming full circle and we are getting the end results here in 212, ready to jump off into the season finale of Dragonfly and Amber, into the abyss that awaits us at the bottom of Culloden Moor. God help us. So... I guess that means that we're ready for a quote of the episode. I already said my honorable mention, which was, My poor brother. I have spent my life crippled in body, and he has spent his crippled in mind. That was my honorable mention. But my actual quote of the episode was, Memories, they remain raw even longer than wounds. And, um... I guess that line just stuck out to me because I've got a lot going on in my family right now and that really just struck a chord. That was a column that said that in case anyone missed it in the episode. And the performances of the episode, it's a tie because I really felt that both of these gentlemen did a fantastic job in their respective scenes were Graham McTavish and Tobias Menzies. When they had their final scenes with their respective brothers, their performances were so powerful and in such different ways. But when I think of this episode in the grand scheme of season two, those two scenes always stand out to me. So I had to give their performances a shout out and 
performance of the episode because, I mean, good lord. Yeah, anything that makes me feel that deeply just deserves all the gold stars. Okay, guys, well, that about wraps up what I have to say on 212, The Hail Mary. But as always, I want to take a moment to read a couple of comments from social media on the podcast thread. My first comment is from Donna Delaca. She says, it was good to see that Blackjack had somewhat of a heart towards his brother, and that is why he committed the treasonous act. The treasonous act that she would be talking about is giving Claire the information about Cumberland's army, which, yes, was also a very interesting tidbit. She says, Mary and Alex were so in love, but I cried when Mary had to marry Blackjack for her and Alex's baby to be taken care of. So let's talk about that a little bit, because that's not something I talked about in the episode. When Claire walks out because Jack is there, he runs after her and asks her to continue to take care of Alex. He says he's not asking for himself. He's asking for Alex and Mary and their unborn child. And Claire just kind of rolls her eyes and was like, Jesus Christ, is this never going to be over? He's a freaking cockroach, Jack Randall is. He never goes away. So she comes back to him and says, I'll take care of your brother, but I want something in return. I want to know where Cumberland's army is. And Jack turns to her and says, My, you would bargain an innocent man's suffering for something you want. Madam Fraser, you impress me. And when you impress Blackjack Randall, like, you should just be so disgusted with yourself, in my opinion. (laughs) Like, if you have to sink to that level, just walk away, girl. Walk away. (laughs) Yeah, I really do feel like Jack was so desperate to save his brother that he would have given her the moon, the sun, and the stars if she'd asked. Which really sucks, but at the same time, I can totally get why Claire did what she did. My life is a mess right now, and I'm going to do whatever I have to do, even bargain with the devil if I have to, to get the information I need. So it was very interesting. I'm glad you brought that up, Donna. My last comment is from Beth Bickle Eckert. She says, I liked the way this episode gave a bit more depth and humanity to Randall. Also having insight into the lineage of Frank and knowing he didn't come from Jack, but a more humane brother instead. It is interesting, isn't it? Especially given that he is played by the same actor. You would think, right, that they are 100% direct relatives, but they're not. It is interesting, though, because I've seen pictures of, like, my brother versus, like, my great uncles and stuff. And they really do, like, they share a striking resemblance. So I guess if your genes are strong enough, no telling who you're going to look like, right? But yeah, I I was a bit relieved and, like I said, also a bit shell-shocked that Frank was not the descendant of Blackjack. It's so hard to have someone so endearing and be like, oh my god, they come from this scum of the earth? Like, how is that even possible? So yeah, it was good to see that Alex and Mary had a child and that child ended up being Frank's ancestor. So, very interesting indeed. All right, well... I'll be posting a thread on social media in the next few days for next week's episode on Dragonfly and Amber. Make sure to get your comments posted on there for a chance to have your comments read on the next episode of the Sassanac Files. 
Next week will be my season two finale, so make sure to join me for that. In the meantime, make sure you follow on social media, especially on Facebook, to join in on the season three best episode bracket. We started voting on Wednesday. So, like I said, make sure to have your voices heard on there. And until next week, guys, be safe out there, and I will chat at you later. Have a good one.